<clears throat> what a joy it is to be with you. Uh, I bring you greetings from the Warnall Road Baptist Church in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, even this morning they are praying for you, uh, just as you prayed for us. And, uh, and, and what a joy it has been to be with you this past weekend. Um, my family and I, we're, we're new to the Midwest, uh, and it's so encouraging for us to connect with another like-minded church, not too far away, right, just five hours from Kansas City. Uh, and I'm so hopeful that the Lord might be so kind as to see the flourishing of many gospel-preaching, like-minded churches throughout Missouri and Arkansas and the rest of the Midwest. Uh, so thanks for having me here. I know we've been thinking this past weekend about the ministry of Charles Spurgeon. Uh, we've thought about the amazing work that God did through his ministry, thousands converted under his preaching, hundreds of pastors trained up, charitable institutions founded, churches planted, missionaries sent out. And yet, as wonderful as all those stories are, that was a long time ago. Uh, here we are in the year 2022, and we face all kinds of unique challenges right, in this post-COVID world, uh, this culture that is increasingly post-Christian, that is increasingly confused about sexuality and marriage. Uh, our country is on the brink of recession, uh, while internationally there are wars and threats of wars. And in the meantime, so many churches seem to be moving away from biblical convictions you know, we can be thankful for Spurgeon, but we can't live off of the events of the past. No, every generation needs a fresh work of the Holy Spirit. What would it take for us to see a revival, a surprising work of God in our generation? Of course, you know, church growth gurus have offered all kinds of answers to that question. Uh, you know, dynamic youth groups, you know, children's ministry programming, Robust adult ministries and engagement, you know, most often the, the pressure lies with the senior pastor, right? If only the pastor was more dynamic, if he preached longer sermons, if he preached shorter sermons, uh, if he followed these five easy steps of leadership, then the church would grow. Friends, I wonder what you think would take for the church to see a revival today. I want to impress upon us this morning that this one idea that salvation belongs to the Lord. Which means, on the one hand, revival is a lot simpler than we thought. And also, on the other hand, that revival is a lot more impossible than we thought. And to help us to be convinced of that, I want us to be looking at 1 Samuel, starting in, verse, in chapter 13. Uh, if you're using the Pew Bibles, it's on page 134. Uh, here, the Israelites find themselves stuck in a hopeless situation. And it's in this situation that we're going to see how it is that God saves his people and revives his people. And really, that's my outline. If you're taking notes, point one, our, our dire situation. Our dire situation. And point two, God's sovereign salvation. God's sovereign salvation. So turn with me to First Samuel Chapter 13, uh, and if you're not used to listening to the sermons, it, you'll, be, you'll be helped by having a Bible open in front of you so you can kind of follow along. First uh, Samuel 13, I'll start reading here in verse 1, our dire condition. Saul lived for one year and then became king. 
And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash on the hill and the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. All right, so here in this section, we see that Saul has been chosen king of Israel. He is the first king in the nation's history. And chapter 13 opens with Saul assembling an army of 3,000 men. Saul must now deal with the Philistine threat to the west. Jonathan is Saul's son, and he is also a commander in his army. And it seems at this point that Israel is not living in open war with the Philistines. There is rather an uneasy truce between the Philistines and the Israelites. They are coexisting, even while the Philistines are subjugating Israel. Uh, It seems that they've established garrisons throughout the land to remind Israel that they are in charge. But then we see here in verse 3 that Jonathan strikes the first blow. He attacks a, a Philistine garrison. And now Saul calls Israel to gather for war. And the Philistines respond. Look at verse 5. The Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. All right, so now, at this point, we have open war, right? The Philistines and Israel are gathering together, and Israel is outnumbered. Israel is outmatched. The Philistines have better technology, more horsemen, more chariots. They have soldiers like the sand on the seashore. Israel is in trouble. And when you skip down to verses 17 and 18, I'm not going to take the time to read that now, but we see that the Philistines have a different strategy. Uh, They're not marching out to battle against Israel. Rather, they've set up their forces at Michmash, and from there, they're sending out raiders into the countryside, into Israelite villages and farms, and they are cutting off the supplies for Saul. Uh, They are raiding, and they are discouraging the Israelites. So this is a war of attrition for the Philistines. Uh, They're going to grind Israel down until Saul has no choice but to surrender. Look at verse 19 of chapter 13. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. Look at verse 22. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. So talk about a desperate situation, right? How do you fight a war without any weapons? Uh, The Philistines control all the blacksmiths in the land. You know, it's a good strategy. If you want to oppress a people, make sure they don't have any weapons. Well, given this dire situation, we see how the people of Israel respond. Look look back, chapter 13, verse 6. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords 
of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. You know, Saul has blown the trumpet, calling Israel to assemble to him, but instead they're terrified. They don't have any weapons, and instead of coming to him, they act shamefully. They, they hide in caves and tombs and rocks and cisterns. They hide like rats. In verse 7, we see that some Israelites even flee from the promised land. They cross the Jordan River to the east. Uh, as far as they're concerned, the Philistines can have the land. Right? We'll go somewhere else. We'll see later that there were even some Israelites who had joined up with the Philistines uh, and were living among them. The few that came to Saul while well, they were trembling. Uh, thing, things are not looking good for Israel. Now, back in 1 Samuel 7, God had already defeated the Philistines at one point under the leadership of Samuel the prophet. And now Samuel <clears throat> has commanded Saul not to do anything until he comes and offers a sacrifice. You know, even though Saul was the king, uh, he was under a higher authority. God would authorize this war. He would bless this war through his prophet Samuel. But then look what happens here in verse 8 of chapter 13. Saul waited seven days, the appointed time by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Look down at verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army, and they went, and they went up from Gilgal to Gibeah, Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. They, are, they have dwindled down from 3,000 to 600. Have you ever heard the term, the tyranny of the urgent? Right? That's what Saul is experiencing here in verse 8. Samuel is delayed. The forces with him are scattering. The Philistines are assembling for war. And Saul just feels like he can't wait any longer. He needs that authorization for war against the Philistines. He needs to show the people that they have God's favor behind them. All he can see is the tyranny of the urgent. And so he takes charge. He refuses to wait for the priest, for Samuel. He offers the sacrifice himself. And just as God would have it, just as he's wrapping up the sacrifice, Samuel shows up. And here in this passage, you can't help but see the similarity between Saul and Adam in Genesis 3, right? Samuel confronts Saul, and Saul, like Adam, blames everyone but himself, right? He, he blames Samuel for being late. He blames the Philistines. He blames the people. He basically says, I didn't have a choice. No, that's never true. We always have a choice whether or not we sin. We may not see the way out, but there is always a way out. 
you know, even in this answer, we see that Saul knew that what he was doing was wrong. In verse 12, he says, I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. You know, he knew in his conscience he shouldn't have done this, and yet he did it. This is the kind of king that the Israelites have. Saul will do whatever it takes, even go against God's commands, to win. And Samuel makes it clear in verse 13 that Saul has disobeyed the command of the Lord. As much as Saul is trying to secure his own kingdom, he will be rejected by God and his kingdom will not endure. So this chapter in 1 Samuel, chapter 13, ends with an unfaithful king, with a people who have no weapons, who are scattered, who are hiding, who are trembling, and they are fighting against basically an unbeatable enemy. This is the desperate condition of Israel. You know, friends, I wonder if you've ever been brought to a place where you feel utterly helpless, where you feel desperate, right? I wonder if any of you might be feeling that this morning. Uh, any of you maybe are feeling, tr encountering some health issues that the doctors are just unable to treat, right? that just never seem to be getting better. Or perhaps you're watching your financial investments dwindle week after week, even as you're rapidly approaching retirement. Or perhaps you find yourselves stuck in a dead-end career, in singleness, in a lifeless marriage. Or perhaps you have loved ones who just keep rejecting the gospel and rejecting you because of the gospel. You know, whether or not you've ever felt utterly helpless, the truth is that at the end of the day, we are all utterly dependent on God for everything. Um, all that we have comes from Him. Uh, none of us have made ourselves. None of us sustain ourselves. At any second, disaster can come and take away our health, take away the things that we find our security in. You know, we really fool ourselves if we think that we exist by the sheer power of our own will. No, no, we are creatures. We are not gods. We were made to be dependent on God. And not only that, but we, we exist in a fallen world that is under a curse. Every blessing that we enjoy, then, is a gift from God. And anything that God takes away actually belongs to Him. You know, if God ever brings you to a place, to a situation, where you finally begin to feel helpless, dependent on Him, then know that He is finally opening your eyes to your true condition. Right? Any sense of self-sufficiency that we have is, in fact, an illusion. Israel, if Israel could have thought that she could live in the Promised Land because of her, her own military might and diplomacy, then Israel would have been wrong. And if we think we can flourish in this world apart from God, then we would be wrong also. You know, this is why when we are brought into desperate conditions, uh, we are so tempted often to take matters into our own hands. We think that our prosperity, our security comes from ourselves, and so when trouble comes, like Saul, we want to take matters into our own hands. We, we are tempted to compromise God's commands. 
Or like Israel, we, we hide or we flee or we defect. You know, we stop giving to the church. We begin hoarding our possessions. We stop sharing the gospel in fear of rejection. We indulge in lustful entertainments, thinking that I deserve this. We begin to think that living in sin is normal and reasonable. Sin always looks reasonable when we are staring at our problems, when our perspective is dominated by the tyranny of the urgent. But, you know, as soon as you introduce God into the picture, uh, when you see a God who is infinitely bigger than whatever problem you face, then everything changes, right? Then we begin to see things rightly. It's like Samuel showing up all of a sudden to rebuke us for our unbelief and our disobedience. You know, when we see God rightly, those compromises that before seemed so reasonable, so practical, now we see are nothing but an undermining of the glory and goodness of God, excuses for our own pride and unbelief and lust. Friends, as those who are so often consumed by the tyranny of the urgent, who think that we can take matters into our own hands, thank God if he ever brings you to the point of helplessness, to the point of realizing that we're dependent on God. Because that feeling of helplessness is actually more in line with your true condition than any feeling of self-sufficiency that you have. So, so lean into that helplessness. Confess your need of God. And from that position, ask God for help. Right? Cry out to him. What you need more than anything else in that moment is a view of God that is bigger than the problems that you face. You know, if you feel like actually that your life is going pretty good and that you don't have anything to feel helpless about, I would say just get to know more of the people around you. Uh, get to know them past their appearances and I assure you, in a church of this size, uh, there are plenty of people walking through some really difficult trials. Um, and as we're commanded in Scripture, we are called to bear one another's burdens, right? Uh, for the strong to care for the weak. Perhaps the Lord has blessed you with a lot of emotional peace and health and strength. And in that case, he intends for you to use that strength to help those who are weak. And together, as a church, we learn the gift of learning to depend on God. Well, thinking more broadly, uh, I wonder if there's anything about this church or maybe even our broader American church context that should make us feel helpless. Uh, ironically, I think so much of the problems of the church today come from our refusal to feel helpless. Uh, we look at our post-Christian world that increasingly hates Christianity and we think, oh, no problem, I can take this on, right? We, we, we think if we can just get them in the doors, uh, if we can just attract them, then we will surely be able to figure out the right technique to, to reach their hearts, right? We, if we can just follow the right church growth strategy, the, the right sort of healthy church technique, uh, if we can do what Spurgeon did, then surely the church will be successful, right? If we can adapt the church and be winsome with the gospel, then we'll be able to reach the lost, and slowly and subtly, in our self-sufficiency, we begin to compromise the church. We begin to compromise our witness and our message. And we leave God in the dust. 
like Saul, even as everything is falling apart around us, we think, I've got this. We've got this. And we rush ahead of what God has commanded. You know, when we do that, we are acting as our own saviors. And we miss out on the far better salvation that God has in store for his people. Well, I think our refusal to acknowledge our desperate condition is part of our desperate condition. And yet, praise God, our salvation never comes from ourselves, but it comes from him. So look at chapter 14. Point number two, God's sovereign salvation. Chapter 14, starting in verse 1. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah and the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priests, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Uh, you know, it's interesting, the, the chapter here opens with Saul and his depleted force of 600 men. It appears that in verse 3, Saul has brought along Ahijah as a replacement for Samuel. The narrator goes out of the way to connect Ahijah to the house of Ichabod, which means, Ichabod means without glory. Uh, and clearly, Saul is without God's glory. You know, Saul here seems to be sitting around, but Jonathan is tired of waiting. And now God is going to do something spectacular through Jonathan. Look at verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. We'll stop there. You know, Jonathan has got to be one of my favorite characters in the Bible. I mean, here is a true kingly character, right? Uh, and here's one who had a simple and unshakable trust in God. In referring to the Philistines as these uncircumcised, Jonathan understood who Israel was. Uh, they were God's covenant people. 
who had received the sign of circumcision as a sign that they belonged to God. Notice in verse 6 that Jonathan doesn't presume on God's help. It may be that the Lord will work for us, he says. In other words, Jonathan knows that God is sovereign. God doesn't have to do anything for Israel. They certainly don't deserve it. And yet, clearly, Jonathan has not lost hope. He still trusts in a God who is able to save. And therefore, he's willing to go over to the Philistines. Despite how dire Israel's situation is, Jonathan knows that that doesn't affect God's power one way or the other. For nothing can hinder the Lord by saving, from saving by many or by few. God is not limited by the fact that Israel has no weapons, by their fewness. That actually it makes no difference at all to God. Nothing can hinder God's saving power. Well, Jonathan and his armor bearer go over. Jonathan, in effect, prays for a sign. And the test is if they say, come up to us, this is the sign that God is calling them to go ahead into the battle. And that's exactly what happens. The Philistines call him over, and Jonathan goes, and he strikes down 20 in a short space. And then God does the rest, right? God sends a panic among the Philistines, as he's done so often in the past. There is an earthquake, the sign of God's judgment upon the Philistines. And then in verses 16 to 20, Saul sees the Philistines dispersing from their camp, finds out that Jonathan is missing. He asks Ahijah to authorize the war, but before he even does that, Saul releases his soldiers into the battle. Apparently Saul did not want to miss a chance to get credit for this victory. But now here's my favorite part. Even beyond Saul's soldiers, we see now the Israelites joining the fight. So look at verse 21, chapter 14. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. And likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them into the battle. Friends, in other words, this here is a picture of revival. Uh, this is not merely about Jonathan's courage and what he did. This is about all of Israel joining in the fight, even including those who had previously defected. Uh, those who had hidden in caves and holes and wells, all of Israel comes out and joins the battle. God here is saving Israel not only from the Philistines, but also from their own fearful, defecting hearts. And so we have this conclusion, verse 23, So the Lord saved Israel that day. You know, I love the contrast between chapters 13 and 14. Israel was in her most dire situation. I mean, next to them being in slavery in Egypt, I don't know of any other situation quite as desperate as this one, right? Uh, you know, facing this innumerable foe with no weapons. And yet even so, God was not one, one bit hindered, right? By many or by few. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You know, even as we must come to see that we are utterly helpless and our condition is desperate, at the same time, we must be those who believe that God is not one bit hindered by our condition, uh, but that he is always able to save. Whatever we lack, God can provide. 
God's salvation always comes unilaterally, powerfully, by His sovereign grace alone. And as Christians, we should not be surprised by this because that is exactly how He saved us in the gospel. The Bible reveals to us that our most desperate need is the sin of our hearts. We are those who have all rebelled against God. We have all chosen to go our own way like Saul. We have compromised what we know to be true and right. We have given way to the problems around us. And we have chosen to do what is expedient. And like Israel, we have rejected God's promises. We have defected and gone over, gone over to the side of the enemy. You know, in doing all this, we haven't just broken some abstract rules. No, we have sinned against God, the high king, the king of the universe. We have mutinied and rebelled against him. And for that, we deserve his everlasting wrath. And this, in this condition, we are helplessly stuck. Now, that's how dire our situation is. And yet, God in his mercy sent his son into this world, his faithful son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came not just to give us a helping hand, not just to encourage us and help us along. No, he came to save. And he came to fulfill everything that we ever needed to be reconciled to God. He lived a perfect life of obedience, and then he took that life and offered it as a sacrifice to God, bearing our sins in our place, taking the punishment that we deserved, and dying on the cross in our place. And yet on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead in victory over our sins. And now his perfect righteousness, his salvation is held out to sinners as a free gift to all those who will repent of their sins and place their trust in Jesus. Friends, how does God's salvation come to us sinners today? Not by anything that we bring to the table. We are not Jonathan in this story. No, we are those trembling Israelites, those who are hiding in holes and caves and who are utterly helpless. And yet, just as God saved his people here, so Jesus stepped into human history and boldly accomplished all that we ever needed to be saved from our sins and to be reconciled to God forever. The story of the Bible shows that this is always how God saves his people, unilaterally powerfully, effectively, decisively. And this sovereign salvation is what we see in Jesus, in the finished work of Christ. So if you're visiting here this morning, perhaps you are hoping for just a helping hand, some good morals to help you clean up your life so that you could face the challenges in your life. Well, I'm here to tell you that your situation is far worse than you ever imagined. You are dead in your sins you are under the wrath of God and you are headed for an eternal hell. And yet, there is a God who sent his son to save you. And he will do so if you will turn away from your sins and place your trust in him. If you have any questions about what that means, I would love to talk to you after service. There are people here who would love to talk to you after the service about what it means to place your trust in Jesus. For my brothers and sisters here, as those who have been saved by Christ, we have been given a mission to take the gospel to our city, to the nations. And yet, this is a daunting task, isn't it? 
this is where I think Jonathan is such an encouraging picture to us for how God can use even us in our very ordinary obedience. You know, Jonathan's faith here is remarkable, and yet Jonathan is not really doing anything that is really that unusual. Uh, he doesn't presume on God's grace. He doesn't call down an earthquake. No, like a good soldier, really what he does is he's willing to show himself, right? The, the Philistine says, oh, look, here they come out of the holes in the ground. No, he, he just shows himself rather than hide. And rather than forcing the action, he prays. He waits for God to show him what to do. I think in Jonathan, we see a great picture of God's call for us. Amid our desperate situations, we are called simply to persevere in faith, to believe that God can do something spectacular, right? Yes, it all looks hopeless. Yes, we don't have any weapons. Yes, people don't seem interested in the gospel. But we persevere. We keep praying. We keep showing up. We keep looking for opportunities. We keep sharing the gospel. And then we keep praying some more. You know, Jonathan didn't go up there with the thought, ooh, if I just do this the right way and say the magic words, then God will be forced to do this amazing miracle. You know, and we can count on, we can sort of manufacture some kind of salvation. No. Jonathan says, let's go and see what happens. And perhaps the Lord will work for us, right? There's this wonderful balance of faithfulness and yet humility and yet hope. And I think that's what faith in God looks like. Our hope is in him. And the visible evidence of our faith in him is just this willingness to show up and to keep doing what God calls us to do. And every time we show up, we believe that God can take our small efforts and do something spectacular. And yet that's in his hands. We leave that in his hands. You know, I wonder what it would look like for you to show up like Jonathan. You know, for some of you, it may simply mean just, just coming to church on a Sunday morning after a tough week, after all your struggles, just showing up on a Sunday morning like, like you are even here today. You know, for some of you, it may mean, okay, let's figure out a way to give financially to the work of this church. Let's, let's, let's figure out how we can sacrifice for the work of the gospel and for missionaries and for church planting. You know, for others of you, it may mean something more difficult. Showing up may look like teaching a Sunday school class uh, or, or initiating a Bible study with a non-Christian friend. For the elders here, showing up looks like giving yourself to preaching excellent, rich, Christ-exalting sermons week after week, even if you can't see all the fruit of that right away. You know, I think faithfulness just looks like different things for different people. But whatever it looks like, it means that we never underestimate what God can do even through our small obediences, our small efforts. As Jonathan says, you know, it just may be that the Lord will work through us and for us. And, and what a wonderful thing it is when God does that. Because that's what we see here. And what I love about this victory is not just the deliverance of Israel, it is also the mobilizing of Israel. Those who were previously cowering and defecting are now emboldened to join the work of God. God saves them not only from the Philistines, but also from their own fears and unbelief. 
You know, friends, we have seen God do this kind of work throughout church history. This is what we call revival, right? What is revival? Revival, as Jonathan Edwards says, is a surprising work of God. It's not anything we can manipulate or manufacture. No, it's a surprising work of God in a particular season in the church where God awakens his people to the gospel, to the glories of the gospel, and brings about this remarkable fruitfulness in our obedience, in our service, leading to the growth and the strengthening of the church. You know, people normally associate revivals with unbelievers getting saved, and that's certainly a part of it. But revivals are primarily about the church, the people of God. You know, dead people can't be awakened. It's God's people who need to be awakened, uh, awakened by the Holy Spirit to the glory and to the majesty of God. And it's in these seasons of revival throughout church history that we have seen the church strengthened and we have seen the spread of the gospel in evangelism, in missions, in church planting. You know, what's so interesting is that throughout church history, God always uses the most unlikeliest of figures to accomplish that kind of work, those who are willing to step out in obedience. You know, we, we just heard from Acts 5, we, in the very first revival there on the day of Pentecost, it's a bunch of fishermen, uneducated fishermen, who preach, and the Holy Spirit comes down, and thousands are converted there in Jerusalem, right? I think of the early church, and the aged Polycarp, and the young woman Perpetua, uh, testifying to the gospel with their blood, and overturning the Roman Empire for the gospel. I think of the medieval church steeped in corruption and false teaching. And then along comes Martin Luther, right? This, this fearful, guilt-ridden monk who discovers the gospel of justification by faith alone and takes a stand against the sale of indulgences. And as a result, the gospel spreads throughout the Western world. I, I think of colonial America during a time when religion was in decline and nominalism reigned. And then God brings along this socially awkward, brainy preacher called Jonathan Edwards and this cross-eyed Anglican preacher called George Whitfield. And through their preaching, he brings about this great awakening, unifying the colonies, establishing this vibrant, gospel-centered Christianity. I think of Adoniram and Anne Judson refusing to compromise their convictions and I think of them in their tireless and painful labors in Burma, not only establishing a gospel church among the Karen people that exists down to our day, but also rallying and unifying Baptists throughout America to work together for the cause of missions throughout the world. Of course, we've heard about Spurgeon, the country boy that comes in and turns London upside down and is used by God in a powerful way. You know, in our modern day, I think of the church in China. Uh, after all the Western missionaries were kicked out in the 1950s, three decades later, Westerners returned to China only to find out that that underground church has not only survived, it has multiplied. So that now, today, there are millions of Christians in China. Friends, during so many times when the church seems the most dead and struggling, that's when God has worked his powerful hand through the bold witness of the unlikeliest of servants, 
So, I wonder, are you discouraged by the state of the church today? Are you discouraged by the reports of abuse and scandal and how these stories are being paraded before the world to our shame? Are you discouraged by the constant infighting and disunity? You know, what about the state of this church? Are there things about this church that might be discouraging to you? Do you, do you wish that there were more, more ministries that were going on? Do you, are you, are you, do you wish that the budget was larger? Are you discouraged by some aspect of your leaders? Are you discouraged by how few people are being converted? You know, we're always grateful for transfer growth, right? When others join us from other churches. But don't you long to see people from non-Christian backgrounds saved, right? Converted powerfully under the preaching of the gospel. Don't you long to see our children radically converted, devoting their lives to Christ? And even more than all these things, what about the state of your own heart? Are you discouraged by your own spiritual dullness? Are you discouraged by how worldly your thoughts and your desires can be? Are you discouraged by how easily you give in to all those little sins, all those respectable sins, by how dry and lifeless God's Word can seem sometimes, by how sort of just ritualistic Sunday mornings can be, Sunday after Sunday. Friends, there is one answer, only one answer to all these problems. It is for God to revive His people. It is for God to supernaturally awaken us once again to the truths and the glories of the gospel, to, to remind us once again of our first love in Jesus, for God to instill in us the same kind of simple and unshakable faith that we see here in Jonathan. And regardless of what we think about the broader church or, or, the, or this church, our prayer for revival always has to begin with each one of us, personally, individually, right? Friend, what, what difference would it make in your marriage, in your parenting, in this church, if God intervened in your heart, in your life like this? If God were to make you here a kind of Jonathan in this congregation, so alive to his glory and his gospel, that you begin to lead others out of the holes and the caves into the fight. You know, every generation desperately needs a revival, a revival of our hearts, of the church, of all the churches, and only God can bring it. So what is there for us to do? Well, we must pray. We must pray. We must pray. You know, alongside the preaching of the gospel, the most important work that we do as a church is that we pray. And we're not just praying for the lost, though we certainly are, but we're praying for ourselves. Uh, we are praying that God would revive us, that God would cause his word to bear fruit in our lives, that God would revive our pastors. You know, we don't need new pastors. We need awakened pastors. We need those who can bring us God's word with hearts on fire for him. And friends, if God were to bring about this kind of salvation here in this church, what wonderful things could he do? You know, wouldn't it be just like God to do an amazing work beginning here in Fort Smith, Arkansas, 
I mean, you guys don't even have a professional sports team here in Arkansas, right? Uh, you know, having lived on the East Coast and West Coast, you know what they call the Midwest? They call us the flyover states, right? They don't, they, people don't care about us. And yet, how good would it be for God to do something spectacular here? What could God do, even through this church, to promote healthy churches throughout our convention, throughout the world? You know, this is no mega church. Uh, this, this is not an amazing budget. Your pastors are ordinary men. And yet nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. So brothers and sisters, devote yourselves to prayer. Pray that the Spirit would work powerfully by His Word. That revival would begin here, even with you, and that it would spread throughout this church and beyond. Especially make it a point to show up to your church's prayer meetings. Like, you know, if, if you think that the preaching of the word is enough without you praying, then you've certainly overestimated Blake's preaching abilities. <laughs> you need to pray that God would take that preaching and do something powerful in your hearts and the hearts of those who hear. And when you come to pray, come with the realization that this isn't just a regular old prayer meeting. No, this is the heart of what you do as a church. You cry out to God. You don't think that you're sufficient for this work. God must act because God alone saves and God alone revives. Come with a sense of desperation, of urgency, knowing that this is what you're, the work that God has called you to do, to pray. All right, here's Spurgeon. The prayer meeting is not a farce. It's no waste of time. It's no mere pious amusement. Some in these times think so, but such shall be lightly esteemed. Surely they know not that the omnipotence that lies in the pleas of God's people. God, the Lord, has taken the keys of his royal treasury and put them into the hand of faith. He has taken his sword from the scabbard and given it into the hand of the man mighty in prayer. He seems at times to have placed his sovereign scepter in the hand of prayer. We've been thinking a lot about Spurgeon this weekend, and if you've ever read any of his sermons, uh, his writings, you know his hard work, you know that he was a gifted preacher, a brilliant and faithful pastor, and perhaps you're tempted to think, you know, it makes sense that God caused a revival under Spurgeon. You know, of course, someone that gifted and that hardworking would produce so much fruit. Well, friend, if you thought that, you would be missing the point, because God does not need a Spurgeon. Uh, God is not limited by many Spurgeons or by no Spurgeons. God is not limited by much or by few. God's saving and reviving work never comes according to man's wisdom or power, but according to his grace. And as always, as Edwards puts it, it is a surprising work of God. So here, 200 years later, we do not have a Spurgeon in our midst, but we do not need one. We continue to pray. We continue to be faithful we keep showing up. We keep putting ourselves out there. And we have the confidence and the joy of watching God work in small, miraculous ways and, if he wills, even in large, surprising ways. May it be so for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, what a joy it has been to be with these dear saints uh, this past weekend. And Lord, I entrust the work of the gospel here to you. Uh, Oh Lord, we cry out to you. Lord, we confess even this morning we are not sufficient to see the lost saved, to see the gospel spread. No, Lord, all these things must come from you. Lord, we confess that we are entirely dependent on you. And so, Lord, we pray and we ask, Lord, that you would strengthen the work of our hands. Lord, that you would use the preaching of the word here, the the ministry of these saints, Lord, to do a surprising, a miraculous work throughout this region and beyond. Oh, Lord, we confess our utter dependence on you even this morning. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.